Greetings, and we're happy you found us here on the Hooks Baseball Podcast. I am Michael Coffin. A lot to get to this week, so we'll dive right in. On the calendar, on the docket, Dan Reiner checks in with former Hooks infielder Drew Sutton, the two-time Texas League All-Star, managed in the Collegiate Summer Baseball Invitational held earlier this month in Bryan, Texas. Also, Amy Johnson talks to Tina Butler, the Director of Resource Initiatives for Continuing Education at Del Mar College. Ms. Butler is also an activist with the Corpus Christi chapter of the Texas Association of Black Personnel in Higher Education. And then J.D. Davis sits down with our very own Jeremy Sturgeon, the Senior Director of Stadium Operations at Whataburger Field. Jeremy will break down how the ballpark is preparing to welcome guests during this pandemic. And we lead off the Hooks Baseball Podcast this week with Astros broadcaster Robert Ford. Mr. Ford has called seven seasons of Astros baseball on the radio, spent time with the Kansas City Royals as well, and a seven-year run in the minor leagues calling games for the Binghamton Mets, the Kalamazoo Kings, and the the Yakima Bears. Uh, Robert, how are you doing, sir? Hanging in there. I'd be doing better if games were going on right now, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see if and when that happens. It's good to hear from you. Uh, how, how are you holding up dear, during all this? Well, I think all things considered, I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, obviously, it hasn't been an easy time for anyone, uh, but I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, I, I have a, a job that I love, even though I'm not doing it right now uh, the way I would like to be, you know, still getting compensated for it, which is something a lot of people cannot say right now. Um, and, you know, no one... Uh, and my immediate family or friend group has been adversely affected by, by COVID-19 in terms of contracting the disease or having serious issues with it or anything like that. So uh, I think I'm doing better than, than a lot of people. Like a lot of people, I'm restless. I'm ready to for things to, to get back to quote unquote normal, whatever that looks like. And I'm ready to get back to work, but uh, just trying to take things one day at a time. Well, I know it's it's reassuring for Hooks and Astros fans just to, to hear your voice and bring some normalcy back to, to their day. And the idea behind this podcast initially was, you know, to take the extra time that we have to to go in depth with some of our of our uh, different, you know, baseball figures around our around the Astros and the Hooks and and kind of get to know them. And uh, for you in particular, you know, this this pandemic obviously is one thing to, to have to deal with our nation confronting social injustice. But uh, personally, you know, this has been a trying time for you. Condolences. Your, your dad passed away last month, Robert Ford Jr. I, I did not realize how much of a, a music mogul he was. Can, can you tell <laughs> us about your dad and, and, uh, and your relationship with him and, 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 and how you're holding up right now in that regard? Yeah, well, thanks for asking, Mike. You know, my dad, uh, he lived quite the life Um, You know, you're talking about someone who, I mean, by his own admission, had barely a high school education, uh, you know, went to one year of junior college and wound up doing a a lot of amazing things in his life and and having quite a career in the music business. Uh, A lot of it was was timing, uh, but a lot of it was hard work also. And uh, being at Billboard magazine and being a music reviewer when... uh, what we now know as rap music, as hip hop, was just 
in its infancy and being in a position to, to cover that and being the first person to write about rap music in a mainstream publication, Billboard magazine, uh, it's pretty amazing. And then transitioning onto the production side and the writing side, the songwriting side with, with Curtis Blow and helping him become the first rap artist to sign a record deal with a major label. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing just to think about some of the things that my dad has done in, in his career and did in his life. And it was a lot, you know, as a kid, I didn't really understand it or really appreciate it. I knew a lot of other people made a big deal about some of the things my dad did, you know, mentoring Russell Simmons and then later working for Russell Simmons, at his production company and at Def Jam Records and and doing things like that. Um, I knew it was a big deal to other people, but I, I didn't really think it was a big deal because I think for a lot of a lot of kids growing up, uh, you know, your dad, whatever they do, it's just, you know, that's that's your dad. And that's how it was with my dad. And, you know, I, I just when I think about, you know, all the memories I have with him and the time I spent with him growing up, uh, for me, he was just dad. He was my favorite person to play catch with. He was my favorite person to uh, watch uh, sporting events with. And we watched a lot of sporting events together on TV just talking and talking about the games. And, you know, we talk a lot about the broadcasters too. Well, long before I ever knew that I wanted to call games for a living, we would talk about why we like certain broadcasters more than others, why we dislike certain broadcasters. Uh, and, and you know, looking back on it, I think that helped uh, plant the seed for the career that I, I wound up having. Um, I think what also helped plant the seed is the fact that my dad was always doing things that he was passionate about. He was never someone who just had a, a job where he wasn't particularly fulfilled and was just punching a clock uh, and, and just coming home every night, uh, just glad that the workday was over because he didn't like what he did. He, he loved what he did, and he always stressed the importance of trying to do things you're passionate about. And I think that's a big reason why I've I've chosen the career that I've had and uh, have been able to do a lot of the things that I've done. It's because of, of my dad's influence, even though it was in a different career in the music business as opposed to broadcasting and sports. I think there are a lot of similarities. Well, take us back briefly to, to February of, of, of 2013, Robert, when you when it was announced that you were the Astros uh, broadcaster, the voice of the Astros. What was what was his reaction? What was your family's reaction? That must have been a, a proud moment for the Ford family. It was. And, you know, I interviewed for the Astros job initially in early December of 2012. And, you know, they I didn't tell very many people at all that I was even interviewing because I didn't want to get people's hopes up and I didn't want to get my hopes up because I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, it was the first time I had ever interviewed for a, a Major League Baseball job and, you know, a chance to, to perhaps get my dream job and call Major League Baseball games for a living. Uh, there was a lot that was going through my mind at that time, but yeah, I didn't tell my parents. Um, I didn't, I mean, there, I can count on one hand, the number of people I told I was even interviewing, uh, with the Astros. And when I found out that I had the job and, and got a contract and all of those things, it was probably a few days before they flew me down to introduce me as one of the new Astros broadcasters. And that was when I, I told more people and told my parents. Um, and I remember telling my dad, and I mean, my dad was really excited. And sure. um, I don't have specific recollections of like the conversation when I told him, 
but I do remember he was he was very excited. He was looking forward to it. And I remember uh, purchasing uh, an MLB at bat subscription for both of my parents uh, so that they could listen um, because I, I was really excited about it. And my dad, I mean, both my parents would listen, you know, do listen to games. My dad more so than my mom. Um, my dad would listen pretty much every day and would send me emails from time to time, uh, you know, about things that I said or things that he thought about during the broadcast. And, you know, honestly, when I think about, you know, what I'm going to miss about my dad being gone, that's one of the biggest things is just getting those, those emails from him. Well, condolences again to you and, and, uh, just knowing how important my dad is in in my life, I I just can't imagine it, but uh, I know that you have the the family there and the, the structure there to, to help get you through. And it, it seems like that's really kind of what we're all trying to do right now on, on many different fronts. And since Memorial Day, since the, the killing of, of George Floyd in the custody of uh, the police in Minneapolis, you know, our streets have, have been filled with, with protesters and dramatic images that you see on social media and the newspaper with Black Lives Matter you know, etched on the pavements in our streets in, in these great American towns. And I just wonder what, what your take on all this is. And, and are you encouraged with, with how the community is, is kind of rallied together behind this cause? I am encouraged. And, you know, we've, we've been here before. There have been, um, you know, unfortunately, George Floyd is, is one in a long list of uh, people of color who, have died at the hands of law enforcement in situations that were, you know, uh, questionable at best, uh, unjustified at worst. And I think that it's it feels different with what the engagement has been. I feel like you're seeing engagement from from people and from groups that you weren't seeing engagement from before. And I think the hope is that this leads to some meaningful change, at least it has led to a lot more dialogue than I think there was in the past about some of the injustices that people of color often face, not just at the hands of law enforcement, but in society at large. And, you know, you hope this conversation continues. We have a bad habit uh, of like going on to the next news cycle and, uh, you know, forgetting about things after, you know, two weeks, a month and moving on to the next thing. Uh, and I hope that doesn't happen in this case. It seems like there's a chance for a lot of the things that are being talked about and that are going on to be a little bit more meaningful and to be a little more lasting. And I I think that's, you know, I think that's that's the hope. And I was at uh, George Floyd's public viewing in Houston. Uh, It was a day before his his private service. Um, and, you know, I went to the church. It was down near uh, uh, Missouri City and um, stood in line for it was about a half hour. The line was even longer when I left and it was a hot and humid day in Houston. Uh, but and it was an open casket also, which I wasn't expecting. Uh, but I'm glad I went. I'm glad that I got a chance to show my support to uh, George Floyd and his his family, his loved ones, uh, because it, and, and, you know, for me, it hit, it hit home, hits home for me personally for a number of reasons, not just because I'm African-American, but also uh, being a native or being someone who lives in Houston. uh, And obviously George Floyd spent a lot of his life in Houston. And also, you know, George Floyd was born uh, in North Carolina, not far from where my grandfather grew up outside of Fayetteville. 
Um, my, my grandfather's family uh, is from a, a small town, Shannon, North Carolina, that's about uh, about 30, 45 minutes outside of Fayetteville, North Carolina, not too far from where George Floyd was born. And, uh, you know, my grandfather's family, I mean, they were sharecroppers. Uh, my grandfather was one of uh, one of uh, 11 or one of 10 children. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were farmers, uh, you know, basically their entire childhood. And then my grandfather eventually migrated to New York City, um, where I, where I, where I grew up and where my, both of my parents grew up. But, um, so it hits home for me in that. And it also hits home. Like when I saw the pictures of George Floyd, uh, I mean, he looked like my, my uncles, he looked like my cousins. I mean, he looked like somebody I knew, um, and to know what he went through is just, it's just absolutely heartbreaking anyway, but especially when it just hits so close to home, which it, it really did for me personally. Well, we all need to be confronted with this. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, that I really did not think about, you know, my white privilege until I was 25, you know, and here I am an adult at that point, you know, I have a job, well-educated and, you know, I was taught to love people and that God tr created everyone equally and to give everyone their, their due uh, in this world. So, but, but I never thought about all the chances that I got, chance after chance, that really enabled me to, to be the person that I am. And as a product of a, you know, police officer and a teacher, you know, in my home, you know, I was always taught the police were there to help me. And I was never concerned for my life when I got pulled over. But there's a, a significant, a large segment of our country that, that does not share that view right now. And because of their personal experiences, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is when I think about all the things that I've seen and read uh, since George Floyd's passing, I think about there was a really good uh, conversation uh, that Ken Rosenthal and Doug Glanville had on The Athletic with several uh, recently retired um, black baseball players. Uh, Latroy Hawkins, who's a former Astro, was part of that. Um, and there, there were a few others, Tory Hunter, uh, uh, Ryan Howard, Jimmy Rollins. And, you know, they told stories about some of the harassment they faced uh, at the hands of law enforcement and others when they were at the, the height of their careers. Um, and the thing is, None of these, like every single one of those stories, every single story that I've heard and read since all of this happened, I've heard them before. None of them are new to me. Uh, some things are things that I've maybe experienced personally, but a lot of them are things that I know other people who have experienced, uh, whether they be friends of mine or family members. Um, and I think one good thing that's come out of the death of George Floyd is the fact that these conversations have always been had in the black community about how to handle yourself around law enforcement, how you may not be treated the same way as someone else. And you need to be mindful of that. Uh, and the stories of, you know, unfair treatment at the hands of law enforcement because of the color of your skin. And now these stories are being told on a broader platform and are not just being told within the black community. And I think a reasonable question, it's a question that I've certainly gotten from friends of mine who are not black, is, well, how come these stories weren't told before to a broader audience? How come it's just now that we're hearing about some of these things? And I think there are two reasons for that. I think one, uh, 
there is a, often a belief that uh, you're not going to be believed when you, if a black person tells a white person about harassment they face because of, you know, law enforcement, because of the color of their skin, or you, people are going to say, well, how do you know that was racism? Like, how are you sure? And I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, you know, people of color, we're experts on racism because we've all experienced it at some point or another. Um, so there, there's that. Um, and I think the other part of it is, um, you know, I think there's just this sense you don't want to come off as someone who is always talking about your your race, your skin color, and how it affects you in society at large. And not that the effects are felt necessarily every single day or every single minute or anything like that. But, you know, there I think there's a reluctance for a lot of us to discuss those things because we don't want to come off as someone that's always talking about our race and always talking about how we're disadvantaged and 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 how how the deck deck is stacked against us. Um, I don't think most people want to be seen as as people who are always talking about those issues. Not that you shouldn't talk about them ever, but I think most people don't want to be seen as someone like this is always what you're discussing, especially if you're in a situation like, you know, many of us are where, you know, you're one of the few African-Americans at your workplace or in your community, um, because there's often a sense that, you know, you're representing uh, the African-American community at large because you're someone that is seen by people who don't normally see people like you. Um, so it's it's really tricky, but I'm really glad that these conversations are happening. Well, I agree. And, and you know, and we look internally and, and for us in our industry of, of baseball, and, and I'm very happy with the hooks and the way the Astros have, have challenged us as employees to, to have these conversations. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was approached via email by uh, Adam uh, Giardino, the uh, broadcaster for Scranton Wilkesbury, the Rail Riders AAA club. And, you know, he, he uh, confronted us with the point that, you know, a lot of us are in these jobs, specifically in minor league baseball, because we have the family and the backgrounds that can supplement our income for the first four, you know, few years in the industry because it's very low pay. And uh, he set up this grant and encouraged all of us to donate. And I don't know Adam personally. It's the first time he's reached out to me. And uh, I just I want to commend him on those efforts. And, and, and I think he's raised close to $15,000 for an African-American broadcaster in, in minor league baseball next year to perhaps start his or her career. And it's really touching. And it brings up the, the larger point about this, uh, the scarcity of African-Americans in our game, Robert, whether it's the players, the front office, broadcasters. Uh, how can we as a community remedy this? And, you know, Adam Giordino also reached out to me and I, I plan on contributing to his efforts as well. And I, and I didn't, I didn't know, like you, I didn't, I've never met Adam. I, we do have quite a few people in common um, because he used to work in the Eastern league, which is a league that Binghamton is in. And, and, you know, obviously there was some overlap there with some of the broadcasters that both of us know. Uh, but yeah, I think you bring up a, a really good point, Mike, and I'm really glad that Adam is doing what he's doing. Um, and I hope it reaches a much larger, larger audience because, yeah, that's a question that is asked all the time about the declining participation of, of African-Americans in this game and also about the lack of diversity when it comes to the front office and not just in baseball operations, but also in, in business operations as well. And, yeah, it can be tough, not just as a minor league broadcaster, but even if you're a, a scout working your way up or someone in the sales department or what have you. Uh, 
yeah, minor league jobs and even a lot of major league jobs, entry level jobs do not pay very well starting off. And so, yeah, you have to be able to supplement your income. And a lot of times you can't do that by working a second job because during the season, baseball's all consuming and there's not really time to, you know, take another part time job in many instances. So, yeah, you need support from your family. I was fortunate enough that I had that support throughout my minor league career. Um, and my parents were able to help me out uh, on many occasions financially. But when you look at generational wealth, uh, black families have one tenth of the generational wealth that white families do. And that's median generation wealth. So we're not talking about average because average it would obviously skew toward the, the people with the greater amounts of wealth. Median is a little bit more equitable in that regard. But yeah, black families have one tenth of the generational wealth that white families do. Uh, for Latino families, it's a, a slightly greater figure, but it's still re relatively small compared to others. So when you think about that, yeah, why are there not many, uh, why is there not more diversity in front offices? Why is there not more diversity in, in broadcasting? It's because of that number. It's because of things like that. Uh, because uh, if you're in a situation where you're taking this low paying job, it's your dream job, you're trying to work your way up in, in professional sports, um, you, you, a lot, I think it's more likely you'll get to a point where you're like, I just can't do this financially anymore. Uh, it's more likely that you'll get to that point as an African-American, as a Latino than you would as a white person. And, and plenty of people of all ethnicities and skin tones get to that point in this business, as you and I both know very well, because we've known plenty of people who just got to a certain point and just realized they couldn't do it anymore and, and had to give it up a lot of times for financial reasons. Uh, so I think that's a big part of bridging that gap and creating more diversity. And I really think that if you love baseball, you want there to be as much diversity as possible because that's how you grow the game. When people feel like there's a place for them in this game, uh, regardless of whether they're female, regardless of what their ethnicity is, uh, that's going to encourage more people to take interest. If they turn on the TV or turn on the radio and hear and see people that look like them and sound like them, if they are able to, if they know people in their communities who work for the Houston Astros or the Corpus Christi Hooks who look like them, uh, and, and, and sound like them. I think that makes a huge difference in engagement. I think that makes a huge difference in growing the game. I think that makes a huge difference in uh, creating a fan base that starts to skew more toward the lower end or toward the younger end of the demographic as opposed to what baseball has been doing where the fan base has been skewing more toward the, the upper end of the, the age demographic. You're hearing from Astros broadcaster Robert Ford. He, along with Steve Sparks, have provided the soundtrack to some some tremendous campaigns, three consecutive 101 seasons, three American League West titles, two AL pennants, and a World Series championship. I know that you're champing at the bit to, to get back in the booth, Robert. Can and, and it seems like when I'm talking to folks, my family, uh, you know, they're they're always asking, well, what's going on this week with the negotiations between MLB and the Players Association? Can you provide us? I know a lot's happened this week and in, in, in this past weekend. Can you provide us kind of a a basic update of where we stand right now and and your personal outlook on on getting games in this year? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. And you know, one thing I've told many people during all of this because and i'm sure you get this to a certain extent too mike is 
people think that because we work in baseball, we're going to have some inside knowledge, which is often true. But when it comes to this, like, I think a lot of what we know is what's been reported out there. I mean, you know, we're refreshing Twitter to see what Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Passan, and Evan Drellick say just as much as the average person is, because those seem to be the people, and Bob Nightingale, those seem to be the people who have the, the most up-to-date information about what's going on with these negotiations. I'm optimistic that there will be games. I think that both sides have too much to lose for there not to be games. It's disappointing that there hasn't been a resolution already uh, when there should have been. And I mean, obviously there are lots of impediments. There are lots of obstacles that are out of baseball's control and out of the players' control in terms of resuming the season. Uh, and I think everyone's aware of that and everybody is, is willing to make some sacrifices because of that. Uh, but you would hate for there not to be baseball simply because the players and owners couldn't come to an agreement. Um, and I think that they should be able to. I think both sides have been very entrenched in their positions um, and haven't re really been willing to budge on certain things. But I think they both recognize that uh, it's there. there is a lot to be said for these other sports figuring out ways to resume their seasons or to get get into the playoffs and, and things like that. And baseball not to have done that would be a black mark on the game. And it would be really tough for a game that's already been losing a foothold compared to other sports. Uh, it would just make things that much more difficult and make it a lot more difficult once we're back to, you know, more of a full schedule in 2021 and moving forward. I think it makes it a lot more difficult for people to stay engaged and to get engaged in the game when, uh, you know, if baseball winds up being the only one of the major sports, they can't figure it out. Have you thought about some of the challenges uh, about broadcasting, you know, during this pandemic, whether it's not traveling or how you conduct interviews? What, what are some of those things that are kind of rolling through your head right now? I mean, I have thought about it and I try not to think about it too much because things change so much and things are so fluid that, uh, what we think it'll look like now could be completely different a few weeks from now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm aware, you know, we've been told that uh, to prepare for uh, the possibility of doing, of broadcasting road games from a, a studio in Houston, or maybe even broadcasting road games from the our radio booth at Minute Maid Park, um, that obviously will be a challenge. It, it sounds like there's going to be minimal contact between the players and, and coaching staff and the clubhouse staff, minimal contact between them and, and, and the others, whether it's us broadcasters, whether it's beat writers and others, uh, that'll obviously pose some challenges. But I'm just trying to just stay loose and keep an open mind about everything because who knows what this will look like uh, by the time games are played again. And uh, I'm just trying to just prepare myself for whatever. I know what my job is and I know that I love my job and my job is to to bring the game to the fans and to let them know what's going on and to hopefully offer some insight and to, to make the games entertaining and fun to, to follow. Um, it's challenging to do that when you're not doing the games on site, when uh, you don't have as much contact with, with players and coaches as we're accustomed to. But you know what, that's part of this. And if that's what we have to do for a little while, then that's what we have to do for a little while. And um, I'm going to embrace whatever challenges uh, come our way. Well, we're, we're looking forward to, to having you back in the booth, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. And I, I wish we had more time, man. I know that our fans would love to hear more 
uh, about the Astros, some behind-the-scenes stuff, some PG-13 stories about your broadcast partner, <laughs> Steve Sparks, and, and, and we'd love to have you on uh, down the road to, to talk about that, man. Th- thank you very much for the time. Anytime, Mike. Anytime. Hi, this is Dan Reiner, joined this week by former Hooks and big league infielder Drew Sutton, who recently was a manager in the first live baseball event since March, the Collegiate Summer Baseball Invitational. And Drew is taking some of his vacation time right now. You might hear him walking on the beach in Gulf Shores, Alabama. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time. No problem. I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Corpus Christi, and it's, uh, it's good to catch up. Yeah, we'll definitely get into your Corpus career uh, a little bit later in the interview, but I want to jump right in to your experience at the beginning of this month. Uh, the CSBI, which I just mentioned, it took place June 4th through the 6th, made up of four teams of uh, players ranging from the junior college level all the way up to high major division one. Uh, you managed the CSBI Freedom, that was the team name. So uh, I'm curious, how did the opportunity come about to be a manager? The week, I believe, was planned for the 2nd through the 6th. And we would, I was, so the Thursday before that, I can't remember the date, but I got a LinkedIn message from a guy named uh, Uri uh, Giva asking if I had any interest in being a coach for this event that was 100 players, four teams, you know, super regional type double elimination setup, but mostly just a showcase for guys either trying to improve their draft stock or guys who are in the transfer portal for, you know, moving to different colleges, you know, because of all the the rules that had changed. Um, So he reached out, we got on the phone and he kind of filled me in on on logistics of how, how it all would work. Um, I called him back at four o'clock after I talked to my wife and got the okay that she could handle the boys by herself for six days. And, um, and that's, that's kind of how it happened. So we, you know, we arrived on Monday morning. We were, we did an antibody test through the blood. Uh, and then once we got those results back, it took about 15 minutes. Then we were allowed to go up to our room and then we did the actual COVID test and we were basically quarantined in our rooms. Uh, until the results came back. I think it ended up being about 28 hours. And then we were allowed to get on, out on the field and work out. So that, that process and time frame happened pretty quick. But, you know, I just saw it as an opportunity, one, to be around the college game, which I hadn't been around in a long time, and see, you know, where these guys were at and see if I had anything to offer them as far as knowledge or, you know, approach. And uh, I, it was... It ended up being a phenomenal experience. Yeah, it's. It, I think that uh, it was kind of twofold in, in the importance of this event. A, that it was the first live baseball event since the beginning of March, since really spring training was shut down. And uh, B, it was, it was kind of the uh, litmus test of how things would be operated, really, in a, in a baseball stadium, in a live stadium event setting. Because we've seen overseas, you know, soccer events and, and so forth that have already been up and running. But here in the U.S., we really haven't seen anything of this scale where you have the four teams and it's kind of, it, it was kind of that test of, of seeing if everything would, would go off without a hitch or, you know, if there were going to be some road bumps. And 
Um, so I, I thought it'd be great to get your insight here. Um, you know, what, what was it like just operating day to day? You know, you're, you're going to the hotel, to the stadium, back to the hotel. You know, you don't really have outside contact. There's no fans in the stadium. What was that like? It was very different uh, not having the fans in the stadium. But it was almost like I went back to when I was in minor league ball. <laughs> you know, you hang out in the hotel. You hang out with the guys. It's, you know, you, you maybe go find something. Well, most of the food was brought to us, right? So they, they had it set up with the hotel. And then they had it set up with local restaurants that we, you know, we had meals provided. They were handled a certain way for protective purposes. Um, we were only allowed to be at the hotel and then to take the shuttle to the ballpark. And I know that, you know, the NBA is trying to do something similar at this point. It really, it was what we had to do to, to make it safe because there were a lot of eyes on us and there were a lot of people reaching out and saying, hey, how are y'all doing this? How, you know, how does it work? What would you do different the next time that you did it? What, what adjustments would you make? And, you know, we were, we were a test because I think that, you know, all this was put together in about three or four weeks. You know, there was an executive order from Governor Abbott to make this event happen. So there were a lot of eyes on us. And we, as a, we kind of took the responsibility as players, coaches that, hey, we've got to protect this thing in order for this to move forward for other sports. You know, we were the first live sports, team sports, to either have practices or play in games and, you know, since what, the second week of March, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a huge responsibility with that to make sure that we got it right. What was it like uh, knowing that you would be on ESPN2 for that first night and then it moved over to the pay-per-view online, but that first night was on ESPN2 and uh, knowing that, you know, over the course of that weekend, you'd be not only managing these players who, uh, some of them, you know, there were players from from D1 schools like Baylor, uh, your alma mater, but there were a lot of junior college and I know there was a Texas A&M Corpus Christi player on one of the teams and, you know, for those guys to have that kind of spotlight, not only to be able to play on the, on a national network, but also because, again, so many people were watching. Uh, what was that like for you and your first managing experience? How did that all go? You know, did you have any coaching background, really, or was it just kind of you being able to have fun out there for the first time? You know, a lot of it was my approach as a player. You know, like the best managers that I played for, you know, I, I was very lucky. I got to play for guys like Dusty Baker, Terry Francona, Joe Madden, Clint Hurdle. So I got to, you know, I didn't realize it at the time and appreciate it as much as I wish I would have at the time, but those guys played. You know, Madden played, but he, he was just such a player's manager that, you know, it was, hey, guys, show up, get your work done, be professionals. You know what you need to do to get ready, you know. And then the players kind of held each other accountable. So my approach kind of came from seeing, you know, the different clubhouses and, you know, and approaches from different organizations. But, you know, the range of players, like you said, we had guys from NII all the way up to Texas Tech, which was the number one team in the country, I believe, at the time, or close. So to have that kind of range was, you know, it, it allowed players to see where they stacked up. 
you know, like that's that's really what you want as a player is you want to test yourself and see see where you're at. And this this event definitely delivered that. Um, but the, the fun part for me was just, you know, I, I when I do lessons or when I work with people, I'm very interactive. So I was out there taking ground balls with them. I was trying to show them different moves or actions that would make turning a double play easier or getting rid of a backhand easier or making this throw more accurate or like just the teaching aspect of the game of, hey, this is how you do things to shave off half seconds in pro ball. You know, this is how, you know, when the game speeds up, this is how things have to work to cut down time or, you know, and then when we talk about hitters, you know, this is when you can get into the, the level of, okay, what's what's he trying to do to you, right? From, you know, is the is pitcher trying to get you, if there's a runner on second and you're trying to move him over, right? How's he going to pitch you and what are you going to have to do to adjust? And then from the pitcher standpoint, that was probably the most fun that I had was calling pitches for the catchers. I think I only did it for maybe one game out of the whole time, but um, I knew what messed me up as a hitter, you know, changing speeds, changing eye levels. And so to teach those kids that approach, you know, of how to work both sides of the plate or how to make the hitter uncomfortable. Um, those were always the fun aspects of the game, the analytical side of, you know, what they call the game inside the game. But, you know, these kids were just starving for information, you right. know, wanting to know why you do these things. Why, why is this approach more successful than this approach? Um, and so, man, being able to teach those guys was, uh, and especially at all the different levels, was, man, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, and, and it seems like basically a mini training camp, you know, those, those five or six days that they were able to have with you. And you had mentioned earlier uh, before we started recording that uh, the, the organizers wanted to bring in guys with big league experience, playing experience. And I know one of the managers was actually Latroy Hawkins, former big league pitcher, big league veteran, spent a lot of years in the majors. Uh, what was it like? You know, speaking with him, managing against him, you know, what kind of insight was he able to provide? How did, how did they land him for the event? So how they landed him was was is a cool story. They, um, and some of my details may be a little fuzzy, but Latroy, when he was when he was earlier in his career, he had an off day. I think he was in. I'm not sure which team he was in camp with, but he was he was there at the complex for an off day with his daughter. And there was a, a father and son in the stands doing a, a tour of the stadium. And Bushroy's daughter said, hey, can we play catch with that kid? And he's like, yeah, come on, you know, have him come down. Well, then the families after that, they kept in touch. Latroy said, hey, if you can get, and this kid plays in college now, I believe he plays at Creighton. He said, if you can get into this event to play, then I'll coach it. So then he was able to meet up with this, you know, with his kid he, he met when he was 12. And, but the timing of when Latroy was there and what was going on in the, the world at the time was perfect and a perfect message for what these kids needed to hear. Of. Because a baseball locker room, like you know, there's people from all different kinds of backgrounds. There's people from all different kinds of countries and cultures. And, and we have to 
get to know each other and play together and respect each other. And, you know, those, those aspects of, you know, how the culture inside of a locker room, you know, a lot of that's missing from, you know, the, 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 the perspective of, you know, maybe kind of what's going on in, in some other parts right now, but he had a, just a great message of, listen, like get to know people, you know, get to know where they're from or how they grew up, get to know, you know, some of their stories. And it makes you, you know, a little, have a little bit more empathy for maybe where they're coming from, you know, and, and they get to know you a little bit better. So that, that message at that time and Latroy being there was, was, you know, I don't think a coincidence. Um, you know, but the but the the impact that we were able to make in such a short time, you know, just talking to him because we had nothing else to do. Right. You know, they, we had a big lobby downstairs and a big room where we would all eat. And every time you went down there, there were three or four tables of guys just having conversations, either about baseball or college or what they were going to do. You know, now that college baseball has changed a little bit. Um, you know, so they were like, with the current situation where everything's at. Like, what? How do we? You know, what do we do from here? Where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. And um, just de- trying to focus on developing young men, really. So, how do you see? Like, do you see uh, this model being successful? You mentioned the NBA earlier. You know, if baseball is going to come back and they have a spring training of sorts. Uh, do you think having experienced this from start to finish, from the test, you know, the day you show up and the testing to the final day and everything's wrapped up and you get to go home to your family, is do you feel like that this can go off and and uh, be a successful model for leagues to follow? I think we were very diligent to not make sure that our bubble which we kind of called it that our bubble of, of players and to make sure that that stayed protected. I mean, ours was only six days, right? So it wasn't that big of a sacrifice to stay in the hotel or go to the ballpark. I, I know that one part of the NBA as a players are like, well, we want the freedom to be able to go out and, and, you know, go shop or eat or, you know, those types of things. But I, what I'm doing this summer is a Texas, Texas collegiate league and they've expanded into different minor league towns. I mean, you'll know like San Antonio, Amarillo, Frisco, Tulsa, Round Rock, you know, these double A, triple A teams who don't have minor league teams right now. And have, you know, these teams are able to happen because, you know, the, the ballparks have reached out and said, Hey, you know, we'd like to have a team. Um, so I think that, this event helped to develop the standards that they'll use for that league. And, you know, that's, it's tough to see how that would translate across other sports, but I do know that, listen, playing baseball right now is a privilege. Not many people are able to do it. Um, you know, so I think there's people would make some sacrifices to make that happen. Uh, I hope that they would, but, it's, you know, it's just like, like normal double A ball. You, you make sacrifices through your summers or giving things up to pursue that goal. And, and, uh, you know, this 
you'd have to give some things up to to be safe. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely think it could. The model lays a groundwork for what what worked, and then how we can expand on that. Right. So let's stick with double A ball. Let's get into your career a little bit. You're drafted in the 15th round by the Astros in 2004. Uh, that same draft had Hunter Pence and Ben Zobrist in it. Uh, you worked your way up pretty quickly through the, the minor league system. You spent a full year in high A ball in 06. And then in 07, you, you make your Hooks debut. 07, 08, you are back-to-back all-star. Uh, you combined to hit 294 with 29 homers, 44 steals, a 839 OPS in 261 career Hooks games. You're still the Hooks' all-time leader in runs scored with 183 and doubles with 67. And my colleague Michael Coffin let me know that you're still the only player in Hooks history with a 2020 season, 20 homers and 20 steals in 2008. So what is your lasting memory of Corpus Christi? It kind of seems like that really catapulted your career. That's, yeah, that season in 08, uh, one, the first thing I think about is I had the host family that I had, uh, Alan and Debbie Morris, the first two players that they had in Corpus Christi were Ben Zobrist and then myself. So that, I thought that was, that's a cool story. She's had a lot of, of good players who came through there, but I, you know, that, that season, you know, on some level it was frustrating to go to put those kind of numbers up and be there all season. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, things are, things are a little different now as far as how fast guys move up. But, you know, you had to, at that time, you had to prove yourself over a whole season. You know, I had to prove that you could stay consistent, that you could, you know, be productive on an everyday basis. And, golly, we had, you know, Manzella was playing short that year. We ended up playing with the Astros in the big leagues. Bogus Sevic was on that team who ended up playing them in the big leagues and we had several pitchers. So it was when you have, when you're around guys like that and you all have the same goal and you can push each other, you know, that, that makes me better. It makes the people around me better. Um, you know, so I was, my, my wife, we went to a Corpus game last season and she saw the, uh, the book of all, you know, all the stats that you just said. And I said, yeah, but I was here for two years. So I don't know. You know, Pence was only here one year, but now the I did not know that about the 2020. I didn't know I was the only uh, guy to do that. That was that was a huge accomplishment that year. You know, you kind of start seeing the goals and you start seeing, hey, you know, if, if this keeps going and I keep up this pace, I might be able to do this. Um, but yeah, that that season got me into the Arizona Fall League. Um, got me put on the 40-man roster. And then when I was out in the Arizona Fall League, um, we had a player or two get hurt. And I ended up playing third, short, second, left field. And so some teams were able to see that. And that was when the utility, super utility role was kind of taking off. Um, and it just that season was a springboard for what – what happened and how I was able to get you know, parts of four years in the big leagues. 
Right. And the following year in 09, you're traded to Cincinnati. So obviously 2008 is what rose your stock, you know, beyond from what it was. Uh, you, you make your big league debut in Cincinnati that year. You made stops, like you said, in Tampa um, and in Pittsburgh. And, and in, in Pittsburgh, that last year, your, your last run in the, in the bigs, uh, you actually hit a walk-off against the Astros on July 3rd. On one to Sutton. In the air to center. Well hit. This ball going back. It is gone! A walk-off winner for Drew Sutton. And the Pirates win it in the bottom of the ninth. Eight to seven. Look at that. They just keep finding a way. A, a different guy all the time. Sutton. The new guy. Welcome to the band, Drew Sutton. That is amazing. I had some really good games against the Astros. <laughs> I hit a I hit a grand slam against them for Cincinnati. I had the walk off homer uh, with Pittsburgh. And so then what's up later with that? in this was it was it a, a vengeance thing or, or was it Absolutely you... <laughs> absolutely man there's always that chip on your shoulder of all right guys y'all didn't think i was good enough or y'all didn't want me all right right, let's let's go you know i mean that's just but that's the kind of attitude you had to have like you you fail so many times you know you people don't want you like people people think this guy's better that guy's better and it's you know i mean look at you look at someone like tom brady like that's 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 how he is who he is it's just you know you you're out to prove I'm better than you think I am. But yeah, it's there was definitely a little extra motivation there. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it, it's refreshing <laughs> to hear you admit it cuz a lot of guys might, you know, try to step around that that question, but I, I think that almost any any player in that situation would uh, you know, that would be their true feeling. So I appreciate you being honest about it, being candid with us. So I'll, I'll wrap things up uh you said you you played for Dusty Baker for for a short time in the majors, and obviously Dusty is the new Astros manager. Uh, it's a few years, you know, almost a decade later here, but uh, Dusty's probably pretty similar the way he manages a game now to ha- as he was then. How do you think he's going to fare with this current Astros team? I think he's been put in a a tough situation, but I know that his mo is to take care of the players you know he wants to put them in situations that they're going to be successful you know that's what that's what i loved about him was he he always gave me a heads up of hey i'm gonna have you start tomorrow against so and so you know and so he gave me time to get ready and that's um you know so that's from a player's point of view you know, I wasn't caught off guard. Like I knew how to prepare for, you know, hey, I'm going to have you pinch hit in a couple of innings if, if so-and-so comes up. Um, but he just – a manager who takes care of the players, gets the respect from the players, and they want to play hard for that for that manager. I mean, we had, I had Dave Martinez, who was a bench coach, Joe Madden, Terry Francona. I mean, all just – I mean, legendary managers, you know, World Series winners. And, um, 
to see them conduct themselves on a daily basis and how they go about their work teaches you a lot. Um, and so that's, you know, that kind of fed into what, how my approach with, with some of these college kids, like I wanted to, I wasn't there, I was there for them, you know, that being on ESPN, that was, that was, that was awesome for them. They, you know, a lot of people got to see them play that normally and, and, and they were even commenting on, yeah, my buddies are, are back and they're, and they're all watching the game and they're going to be texting me about this or that or so that that aspect of it was really fun but um yeah you get around great baseball minds and it's hard not to learn and 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 get better right well drew uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your vacation no less it sounds really nice there and in Gulf Shores, you know, I've been listening to the seagulls and the waves crashing and everything. I wish I was out on the... It's actually surprisingly a cloudy cloudy morning here, Monday morning in, in Corpus. It's been hot and sunny the whole weekend, but some cloud cover now. But I hope it's nice and sunny where you are. And uh, again, thanks so much for taking the time out. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Hi, y'all. It's Amy Johnson here again. I'm joined by Tina Butler. She's the president of the Texas Association of Black Personnel in Higher Education here in Corpus Christi, and she's also the director of resource initiatives for continuing education at Delmar. Tina, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Well, first off, let's just um, introduce yourself and tell the folks a little bit about who you are and um, where you're from. I believe you said you grew up here in Corpus. Yes, I am a native of Corpus Christi, uh, born and raised right here in, in Corpus Christi. I have attended George Evans Elementary. Uh, I then went to Crosley Elementary, which is located in Hillcrest. Uh, I then went to Winsill uh, Middle School, and from there I went to Miller High School, where I graduated from. Uh, I was an honor student at pretty much all those schools. <laughs> uh, and uh, I uh, remained here in Corpus Christi after I had my daughter and started going to Del Mar College. I uh, have four uh, associate's degrees from Del Mar College and one uh, bachelor's degree, degree from the University of Incarnate Word out of San Antonio. I guess with that, um, we can jump in to the, the Texas Association of Black Personnel in Higher Education. Um, I mentioned okay. earlier you were the president of the local chapter. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that organization is, and then we can talk about um, the recent event you guys just had down at Water's Edge, and I know a lot of other things coming up as well. The Texas Association of Black Personnel, it's a, uh, it's a 501c3 voluntary educational association. As I mentioned, we're just the uh, Corpus Christi branch. There is a Texas branch uh, where there's chapters all, all over the state of Texas. Uh, and we pretty much represent all levels of higher education and serve as a voice uh, for minority faculty, staff, and students. Uh, in order to ensure um, a better educational system, uh, as well as the as well as equitable opportunities for Black personnel in higher ed, we have found uh, with several of the members being in different um, positions in higher ed that we see many students who come in unprepared for higher education. 
from not being able to to read the catalog or understand the catalog or find information about financial aid or how you, what prerequisites are you know which are courses that you must have before you can you know take the course that you're actually required to take uh, and we see a lot of them that come in on developmental level uh, and kind of upset about not being able to go straight into the courses needed for their degree versus the prep courses needed for the courses and trying to make them understand why they need that as well as their parents um, we've had some parents who feel that since their students are not on financial aid, why are they not able to just take the classes that they need instead of the prep classes? And it's because of their test levels, their college entrance test scores. Um, so, you know, just making sure that the parents as well as the students understand the process of what it takes. Um, and, and like I say, in doing so, some of the parents uh, mentioned that they wish they had known some of this information prior to their student coming to college. So we began working with the high schools, you know, and, and getting them prepared. Del Mar also has dual credit classes, so that's a way of us promoting those courses, you know, to the high schoolers to take advantage of those. Um, and even in going to high school, the parents, like, uh, mentioned that we should go back even further to middle school because some of the middle middle schoolers are not making it to high school so you know working with those students getting them prepared you know for uh, high school as well as higher ed we're just in the business of you know making it known uh, what is available and, and the process to take um, making sure that they're taking advantage of the deadlines, that they're adhering to what's required in high school so that they're prepared for college. Well, let's talk about the event that you recently had that was the, the CC Black Leadership Standing in Solidarity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that went? Um, you know, why that's something that you guys thought was important and um, you know, anything sure. else you guys have coming up too? We are oftentimes called upon when the NAACP here in Corpus is not addressing issues uh, in the community. Um, we started in the community back when Trayvon Martin uh, was killed. Um, there were several members from the community who uh, contacted Taffy to see what events that we were holding to address the issue uh, at hand at that time, um, which was, you know, policing. And um, again, not being the NAACP and being an educational uh, association, we always try to make it educational somehow, you know, so that the community at large will come, but also make it educational for not only the community, but our students as well so that everyone would get something from this. Uh, so that was the beginning of us going into the community. Uh, and since that time, we have um, put books in the barbershops, in several barbershops in the 78415 zip code area, uh, which is considered to be um, the highest teenage pregnancy rate in this zip code area, the highest gang rate, you know, in this zip code area. Um, this was a initiative that we saw on CNN. Uh, we were the first in Texas to actually um, have barbershop books. And what that is, is books placed in the barbershop so that the young men can keep up their reading skills during the summertime by reading to their barbers. 
Wow, that's fantastic. And so we have been, uh, yes, ma'am, we have been very instrumental in placing those strategically. Uh, I believe even the caller time uh, covered the story when we first uh, put the first barbershop, um, you know, in place. And so they even raised money for us to put a third barbershop that we have uh, in place. And then we also placed a barbershop book, uh, Tiny Library, in Judge Joe Benavides' courtroom several years ago uh, because he was a truancy judge. And those students who were skipping school are the ones that he would see. And so as an alternative to fines and so forth, uh, they could write a book report, uh, provide that to us. We would actually read and grade the report and return it to the judge and he would either reduce their fine or eliminate the fine. We do a lot of grant writing at Del Mar, so we oftentimes look for students, you know, to take advantage of our courses. Um, we also uh, partnered with uh, Judge McCoy uh, on Galahar with his courtroom uh, with the career pathway. So Taffy, we try to make sure we we connect the college with the community at large and make sure that the community, especially our brown and bro- brown and Black brothers and sisters know of assistance that's out there, programs that are out there that can benefit them so that they can become self-sufficient. You said you're getting to the middle schools and the high schoolers and getting yes. them prepared. It's, it's great to have all those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to talk, you said, you know, you guys have kind of been an alternative to the NAACP down here. Um, and you used a quote earlier when we were talking, beginning of change. Can you mm-hmm. tell me about this, this meeting that you guys are going to have and you know what you see the future of that being? Well, yes, ma'am. I, I think this is a, a great start uh, of the black organizations and Corpus Christi coming together. Uh, when the situation of Mr. George Floyd came about, um, I, I received a phone call asking um, for my assistance in helping uh, the ladies who called me who just felt that they wanted to just do something. You know, some of them were non-black, you know, and they they just felt the need to do something, you know. Um, So my assistance was requested to either have an event or assist them in preparing an event. Uh, so that, you know, they could get out there and and recruit the community and so forth. Uh, And it just so happened that Taffy was having a meeting that day. So I did mention to them that uh, I would place it on our agenda and talk to our group about it. Um, She mentioned that the NAACP would not be hosting anything because of COVID-19. So again, here comes Taffy, you know, (laughs) to the rescue, which we don't mind because this is considered educational as well. Um, We had several groups after the call, I believe about three additional groups that called me after the Taffy meeting seeking our assistance too. So this was the reason why we created the event on June 6th. Uh, and as a result of that, several other organizations, black organizations in the community wanted to play a role as well. So the caller originally stated that she could not find the black leadership or did not know who to contact regarding black leadership to ask them. They had just often heard about Taffy uh, and the events that we do in the community, which is what most citizens you know, do is they, they call us. 
And so at that point, we then began to try to fill the void to make it educational, but also a family oriented event, because every event that we host, we always try to make it family oriented and, and educational at the same time. We held the event, the black organizations, uh, leaders of the organizations came together, which is why we named it uh, In Solidarity, Standing In Solidarity, because this might be the first time in a long time that you've seen all of the groups in the city come together as one. The walk was uh, one, um, one thing that we, we plan to do. The second is the event that we are having today, which is Monday, June the 15th. We are having a meeting with all city and county officials at the Nueces County courthouse in the central jury room at 4.30 p.m. so that they can hear from the black community. What's a sort of call to action? How can we get involved, help out? Um, you know, I know you said the event you recently had helped to get a lot of like the black leadership involved. Like what, yes. where can we send them? Like what website? You can definitely go to the Taffy website. Um, it is www.t as in Tom, A as in Apple, B as in boy, P as in Polly, H as in Henry, E as in Edward, CC for Corpus Christi. So taffycc.org, O-R-G. Uh, we will have information posted there at all times regarding upcoming events. It also lists the different initiatives that we often have. We have summer youth leadership camps for boys and girls. Uh, again, we also have the... Uh, the uh, barbershop books. This coming together of the organization, um, we will continue to have meetings. Um, there's some research that a lot of us will have to do, and we intend on creating subcommittees. So this is a first of many, and so that information will definitely be on our Taffy website of the upcoming meetings um, that we plan to have after this but they can definitely get the information from our Taffy website. And I just want to add a quick note, uh, Delmar Continuing Education, we are currently registering for our summer uh, uh, courses, both on campus and online. And we have something new that we just started on June the 8th called Live Chat, where you can actually go to our website and see and speak with a person as you're uh, seeking information, whether it's registering for class or finding out uh, about new programs that we have. Uh, we have a Rebuild Texas grant that we have regarding our carpentry program, which that is free of charge to the students. And we have that in three locations, which is in Sinton, Referio, and Corpus Christi. We have a new house wiring program, which consists of construction, electrical, and plumbing. Uh, we also have several OSHA programs which lead to certificates because continuing ed is not, you know, college credit, but some of our uh, OSA programs lead to college credit. So we do have that. We also have adult education uh, programs as well as personal enrichment. With COVID-19, oftentimes people get lost perusing through the website or trying to find out how to register. So we now have this new live chat which you, which you can actually visually see a person and speak with them to get assistance. And that's from uh, Monday through Friday and on Saturday as well. So if they go to delmar.edu 
forward slash CE for continuing education. There will be a button there that says live chat. You just select that button and you will be uh, connected to a representative from the continuing education department. Tina Butler, the president of the Texas Association of Black Personnel in Higher Education here in Corpus Christi, um, otherwise known as TAFI. Thank you again for joining us. Um, you know, thank you. I look forward to connecting with you guys again in the future. Okay, thank you so much for having me today. Hi, I'm J.D. Davis, and next on the podcast, we are joined by Hook's Senior Director of Operations, Jeremy Sturgeon. Jeremy, it's great to have you on the show today. Great, uh, great to be here, here at Waterburger Field. You know, it is, it's, a, it's a great day because we have some events coming up at the ballpark, and it's been a while since we've had any, any guests, any fans at the ballpark, and you and your team have really led the way on creating, uh, making the ballpark a safe place and uh, making sure that we're following all of the CDC guidelines, everything that our, our governor here in Texas is putting out. Uh, can you talk a little bit like what that process has been like and, um, you know, what it's like reinventing, you know, ourselves as a ballpark throughout this uh, entire pandemic? Yeah, we're um, we're excited. This is the first time uh, that we're going to be uh, open to the public again. Uh, our last event was in March and uh, here we are in June uh, opening back up. Uh, kind of ironic that the last uh, event that we had here was an Ingleside baseball game. And the first event we're going to have here is a graduation for Ingleside. So um, that's kind of cool that Ingleside's kind of the bookends for, for when we were uh, the ballpark was empty. But um, with, with, with everything going on and, and the new processes with COVID-19, um, we're going the extra mile to make sure everybody feels comfortable here at the ballpark. Uh, from the mem from the moment that they arrive at the ballpark in the parking lot, all the way to uh, to when they get in their seats, uh, enjoy the event, and get back out. Uh, one of the things, for instance, they'll be greeted in the parking lot. People are welcome to park anywhere they want, um, where they feel comfortable, away from vehicles, uh, so that they can social distance as they're entering the ballpark. Um, to make sure that uh, the ballpark is safe, we are doing temperature checks and we are doing health screenings. Uh, and as long as everything is good to go. Uh, people enter the ballpark. Uh, we are asking for a clear, clear bags. It makes the process go a little bit faster for us to check, make sure that everything in their bag is, is allowed to come in. Um, with the, we are asking for this event and any event is not to bring in air horns or noisemakers or anything like that. Uh, and then after that, uh, we have social distancing rules throughout the ballpark. Uh, we're going uh, one direction. Uh, in all the walkways so that the traffic flow is continuous uh, one way so people can social distance. Um, in the seating bowl, we are sitting in groups of five. And in between you and the next family, um, there's at least six feet in, in, in uh, front to back, left to right, so that you do have private area. Uh, and then we ask people to leave their masks on until they get to their seated area. Once they're in the seated area, they can relax their masks. But all these are things that we're trying to make uh, our ballpark safe, make our fans feel comfortable. And at the same time, enjoy the experience of being at Waterburger Field. Absolutely, and uh, you know, one of the keys is is making sure that the the staff is ready for that. You guys, we've been building a plan so that our staff knows how to approach all of this, and and that we're prepared. And you know, I guess are, have there been any difficulties, anything that that uh, that's been tough to kind of iron out, or or just a new way of thinking? Maybe we're having to look at things differently. That's been a challenge. Yeah, it was a challenge at the beginning because of the it was very dynamic and rules were changing week to week with the governor's office and COVID and uh, with the CDC. But uh, we have uh, put together a, a very comprehensive and detailed COVID-19 action plan. Um, we had input from our general manager, 
and also from all our directors in the ballpark. And we looked at it from every aspect, everything from parking and ticketing to operations and grounds crew so that uh, we left no stone unturned. And I think that we came up with a very good plan that looks at it from different angles and it'll allow us to uh, maintain our, that, so our staff has can maintain proper safety and, and social distancing for themselves and also to take care of our fans and make sure that everybody feels comfortable and that we're practicing uh, as many safety guidelines as we can uh, throughout the ballpark. And just to remind everybody, if uh, if you are coming out to an event, uh, well, first and foremost, these first two events, the two graduations we have are private ticketed events. Uh, so you must have been invited and uh, and have a ticket from the school district to, to attend. Um, but we just remind everybody that if you're experiencing any of those symptoms um, that uh, that would send off any red flags, or if there's anybody in your household, anybody in the same living quarters that you have uh, experiencing those, we just want to ask that you stay home. And uh, the great thing is we're going to be streaming these uh, these events with the schools, so you'll be able to follow along and uh, and watch from the comfort of your own home. Um, but for the safety of everyone, we want to remind remind folks that we just got to be extra cautious with that, and uh, and make sure that um, if you're if you're experiencing any of those things for the the safety of our other guests, for the safety of our staff, and and everyone involved that, that you stay home in that. And, um, you know, we've seen how important it is to wear masks and, and go through that process. If, if anybody's listening to this and you have questions or, or if you have, uh, if you want to see a little bit more in detail, one of the great things that, uh, Jeremy's team led the way on, and then we've kind of uh, been working on on the marketing side is we've created a, a COVID preparedness plan. And this is on the CC hooks website. If you go to our homepage, there's a there's a link to our all of our COVID resources, and that's up on the website now. And so you can read through this really really detailed plan and and get a good sense that um, you know Jeremy and and his crew we're not leaving any stone unturned and making sure that we're approaching this from all sides and doing everything we can to keep everybody safe when they come to the ballpark. Jeremy, anything else that fans should know or that we should be thinking about when we when we talk about uh, COVID nineteen and and what's going on at Waterburger Field? Yeah, um, we just want to remind everybody uh, to make sure that uh, you have a mask uh, when you get to the facility um, so that uh, while you're entering the facility and transiting in the ballpark, you have a mask. Um, once you are in your seat, you can relax your mask when you're social distancing with your family. Uh, but anytime you get up, we ask that you put your mask back on. Uh, and uh, that's really one of the big things so that we can have control. We do have a couple concession stands open. Uh, there'll be uh, an opportunity to buy soda and prepackaged uh, snacks. And uh, like I said, we'll have pre, uh, social distancing in our in our lines for the for the concession stands for the bathrooms and everything else. We even have some uh, one of our small retail stores open. The the tackle box is going to be open so that people can come out and buy some souvenirs from Waterburger Field and the Corpus Christi Hooks. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a great experience. And uh, I'm excited. Everybody's going to have fun. And I'm really uh, it's a, it's a honor and a great opportunity to be part of these kids lives you know they they've been through a lot through COVID-19 um, and to be part of the celebration of, of their graduation and something that they get to carry uh, for a memory for the rest of their lives uh, I'm excited that Waterburger Field and the Corpus Christi Hooks get to be part of that. The great thing for us is this is just the beginning 
as we start to to look at other events that we've got. And we've got a lot of things in the works, things that we're hoping we can announce soon. Of course, we've got the Father's Day batting practice that's coming up this weekend as well. So if, if fans out there are interested in that, definitely uh, buy a ticket, buy an experience there for dad so they can come out. And, and all of these same regulations that we're talking about in terms of temperature checks, mask wearing, uh, the health and safety screenings, all of those are, are going to be in effect for every event that we have at Whataburger Field uh, for the foreseeable future. And so um, know that this is a flexible plan that's going to be able to adapt to whatever um, whatever type of event that we want to want to hold at the ballpark. But uh, Jeremy, I want to talk. We ha- we haven't had you on the podcast yet, and so I wanted to talk a little bit uh, and give you a chance to share your history uh, with some of the fans out there, fans that don't know. You know, a lot of fans do know you because you're you're one of the faces that that they see um, on the concourse. Um, you obviously work. Uh, very closely with our with our game day staff and Brett Housley's on on your team. Uh, he manages that team, and so you work directly with a lot of the game day staff and people see you on the concourse. But they may not know your full background. Uh, you're a military veteran, and uh, and you've you've been kind of with the hooks and and you know bouncing back and forth a little bit as you were wrapping up your military career. But can you talk just a little bit about uh, about your military service time and um, how you ended up in Corpus Christi when you did? Yeah, um, so I did uh, 23 years uh, in the United States Navy. I'm a retired uh, senior chief. I was an aviation electronics technician. Um, So basically, I worked on a lot of the navigation and guidance systems, radars, infrared, and lasers, and all that cool stuff. But um, that was what I did in the military, and uh, I got the opportunity to get stationed in Corpus Christi with HM-15. We were a helicopter mine squadron. Uh, that would go out to the to the Middle East and uh, sweep the uh, waters and, and clear the waterways for our ships to come in and out of the uh, Northern Arabian Gulf and through the Straits of Hormuz. And so while I was here in uh, while I was here in HM15, I saw on the news and in the newspaper that there was going to be a new baseball team here. So uh, I came with a friend of mine at the time. His name is Eddie, and him and I came out to buy season tickets. And they were doing a job. They were doing a season ticket uh, job fair, whole big thing at the Omni at the time. And I went in and was looking at purchasing season tickets. And I was approached by Tina Athens, who a lot of people that are have been around the ballpark for a while know who she is. And she said, "Hey, um, we're actually still hiring. Uh, how do you feel about coming and instead of getting season tickets, we still have a couple of, of, of spots available. We like to hire veterans." And we took the opportunity and. Uh, I, I came in and became the game day staff lead, and as they say, the rest is history. I did. Uh, I was here with the Corpus Christi Hooks from 2005, and at the uh, from very very beginning uh, through opening day and everything. And uh, I was here till April of 2010. I got stationed in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, when I finally decided decided to retire, um, I, I knew that I loved sports. I knew that I loved baseball, and I and I had a really great experience here with the Corpus Christi hook. So that's something that I wanted to be part of my life uh, long-term. So I started applying for a job and uh, I had a great opportunity again, because Tina Athens at the time was looking at retiring and I was her right-hand man uh, for, for five or six years. So I, um, I applied for the position and I got it. And here I am uh, eight years later, uh, senior director of Waterburger field. And I've loved every second of it. And I, I love the baseball field. I love our team, I love our fans. And uh, I have, I, I've, I mean, I've enjoyed every bit of it. I have no regrets, and and I'd do it all over again if I had the chance. You you said you were going to buy season tickets, and Tina talked you out of it. I think we we may need to 
call you know Tina but I guess we got the we got the better end of the deal having you on staff all this time but we could have had a couple of extra season ticket holders maybe if uh, if Tina wouldn't have jumped in the way that that's very true like we, uh, I'm a big baseball fan and uh, I knew I was going to be here for a couple years stationed in Corpus Christi so I thought hey why not be a season ticket holder and I could bring my wife and kids out to a couple of games and uh, I was excited you know it's going to be the first inaugural season and next thing you know, they're handing me a, an employee number and I'm clocking in and, and helping uh, finish building the stadium and, and getting it prepped for opening day. And, and man, what a great, what a great memory that was. Um, so that's, that's something I get to keep with me for the rest of my life, that I was part of the crew that, that opened the gates uh, the very first day. And, uh, and I was also here when we won our, our, our first and only championship. And that's, that's really, really cool to have been part of that. And yeah, and I, and I owe it all to Tina. If Tina wouldn't offer me a job, I probably would still be a season ticket holder at this point. That's pretty awesome. And, you know, I think also just kind of talks about the, the hooks culture. We've had several people that, uh, that were season ticket holders that ended up, you know, coming to work for the hooks, maybe in a part-time mentality or, or, uh, uh, even some full-time opportunities. And, and we've had the opposite as well. We've had people that uh, work in the office and then they get an opportunity to, to, you know, go somewhere else, do something else. And, and they end up becoming season members. And, uh, just one of the great things about, you know, being a part of the club is, is kind of seeing, uh, you know, being, being an integral part of the community and something that people want to be a part of, um, in just so many different ways. It makes it a lot of fun. Yeah. And that's, that's the unique thing of minor league baseball is it's a, it's a community and it's a family environment. And these, the, the, the fans that come out here are not only our fans, but they're our friends, they're our family. Um, and we grow with them and, and I've had season ticket holders, uh, here from 2005 to now. So I've been friends with them for 16 years. I've seen kids come in here at three years old um, to experience games. And now they're 19 years old and graduating from high school and going on to college and, and uh, to be part of that family and to see their children grow up. And I mean, this whole place becomes part of your life. Uh, it's, you know, I always tell people that working with Corpus Christi Hooks, is not a job, it's a lifestyle. Um, because this is, you know, where I feel I belong. And and these people are, they're as important to me as my own family because I've literally grown up with them for 16 straight years. And I spend, uh, you know, 100 plus days with these uh, people in the ballpark and our fans. And so we see them so often. Uh, and, and every year, the beautiful, beautiful part of opening day is every year we get a family reunion on opening day. And we get to see our season ticket holders that we haven't seen in six, seven months and, and get to greet them and give them high fives and handshakes and hugs and and, uh, and that's really the cool part is because um, when you're a worker here, you become just as important part of the game as the players that are out on the field. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and you embrace the community and they embrace you the same way. And, and like I said, it's been a privilege to work here. And, and, and everybody that comes here, I think, feels the same way. And, and uh, we, we've had very low attrition over the years because once somebody gets hired here, they, they don't want to go. I mean, it's just the community has really embraced us and uh, – and I think everybody loves that, and that's probably the best part of the job. Absolutely. And uh, even though this year's this year's reunion's a little bit delayed, uh, I think it's <laughs> going to make it all the more sweeter whenever we get everybody back together. And I know we're all uh, hoping that we get to do that sooner rather than later, but know that it's going to be a, a fantastic day whenever we can. Yeah, and that's the beauty of social media. You know, you you and your team do a great job reaching out to the fans, and a lot of time, you know, I'll make a comment, and then people will will gravitate and say, hey, Jeremy, how you doing, and this and that. And social media is a really good way that's really allowed us to stay engaged with our fans uh, and 
you know, let them know we're still here. And, 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 and so that, you know, we can let them know we're still here and they're, and they're waiting for us. And, and these fans are excited. Like we, we have the best fans in minor league baseball. And I know every, every ball club says that, but I think I, uh, we, I truly wholeheartedly mean it because, um, this is their stadium. This is their team. This is their ballpark. It's not mine. And they, and they, and they look at it that way. And, and, uh, yeah, it, it's exciting, and like I said, with the social media, we've we've been able to stay engaged in the community. And uh, I'm not to taunt our numbers, but I know we're one of the best social media teams uh, in minor league baseball. But that's not because of us; that's because of our fans and how engaged they are, and how much they care, and how much they want to keep up with the team. And it shows in in, in our analytics because uh, you know people love the Corpus Christi Hooks, and Corpus Christi Hooks love Corpus Christi. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're so incredibly lucky to have the, uh, the fan base that we have and have folks that support us, um, the way that they do. I do want to, I want to go back now. We, you know, we, we mentioned your, your military history and, uh, you know, what, uh, your, your time in service. And one of my favorite things when we, you know, when we're sitting around the office and we're telling kind of, uh, old stories, things like that is just hearing you talk about kind of all the places that you were able to visit, um, I visit maybe the wrong word, but all the places maybe you were stationed or that you passed through being in the Navy and, and you know, in that role specifically working in the, in the Navy, uh, serving in the Navy, you're, you're almost constantly on the move, even, even more so than, than maybe another military branch would be. Um, could you talk, are there any places that kind of stand out as, um, you know, places that, uh, you know, maybe really opened your eyes up to a, to a different, you know, different part of the world that you never ex- expected to go visit, that you never expected to be stationed or, or just anything that really, really stands out, uh, from, from your time in the military? Um, you know, the, I guess the cool part is, is that every place I, I went was so different from the other. Um, you learn to appreciate, uh, every country, um, for itself and what it brings to the table and the experience that you had there. Uh, for instance, I, when I was in Australia, being out in the outback and floating a river and, and watching, I, I tell my wife of this all the time, the most beautiful thing I ever seen was a flock of 500 birds uh, flying around Australia and they're all macaws. And the, 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 the amount of color in, in these flocks of birds flying in the air and watching them switch directions. And, you know, here you see a macaw bird and, and you're all so excited and you're all going to try to talk to it. But in Australia, they, they roam freely. And, and, and it's not uncommon to see a flock of three, four, 500 birds of macaws flying around in their natural habitat. And, and that's one of the, like in Australia, that's one of the things that, that was uh, embedded in my mind. And, you know, when I was in Hong Kong, the food was fantastic. Eating uh, uh, fresh uh, uh, seafood uh, right out of the bay and onto the plate, that was, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, when I was in the Middle East, um, those, uh, the, the people there, uh, their hospitality was great for the people that were hosting us. And uh, going out to their malls uh, and going to a gold souk, I mean, think about this, going to a, a place that's the size of, of, of La Palmera Mall, but the only thing in the entire mall is jewelry stores. And that's what the gold souks are like in the Middle East. And it's and if you've never been to one, when you first walk in, you're like, wow, like there's 250 jewelry stores in this place. And uh, and you're walking around and getting getting a little bit of the best of all the prices and, and trying to negotiate deals. And and that's part of the fun. And like I said, I've been in, in numerous other places, like in London. Uh, my, my goal in London was to ride a double-decker bus, and uh, and I did. And, uh, you know, marked it off my bucket list. And, when, you know, when I was in Amsterdam, uh, I got to see a lot of cool sights there. And, and like I said, the, I, I've been to approximately, I think it's 52 countries that I've been to now. 
And uh, so, but those are those are the biggest highlights that I remember. And, oh, in Egypt, watching, uh, being in Egypt, and and seeing the history, uh, in, in essence, of the world, and and some of the oldest artifacts that come out of there. Um, but those those are probably the biggest highlights that I had. And uh, and to experience that was fun, and it really taught me a lot of culture, uh, not only American culture, but from other countries. And then you learn to appreciate them, and you learn to appreciate their people, and uh, and. And, and respect it. And, and I think that was, that was a big honor being able to, to do that. That does. That sounds, uh, sounds great. And obviously, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of sacrifices that, that you, you and your family made and, and, um, to, to get there, but it's always, um, I always enjoy hearing some of those, those cool stories of the things that you were able to experience and see, uh, along the journey. Um, you know, one other thing yeah. I want to ask, obviously, uh, you're the Navy guy. We, we have an army guy in the office, uh, our boss, our general manager, Wes Weigel. And whenever army and Navy play uh, football normally in the <laughs> fall, we have a pretty, pretty uh, intense rivalry yes. going on across the office. But um, I do, I just want to, you know, Wes will never hear this. Wes, Wes, you know, he, he's busy. He may not listen to this. anything that you want to, any digs you want to get in against army while, while you're here. Uh, you know, this is your chance to shine. We're not going to get him in on this <laughs> interview, but uh, you know, what is it? What's it like working for an army guy? Um, no, you know, um, we're on the same team, um, except for we're on the football field uh, and on the baseball field. But other than that, uh, you know, it, like they say, uh, it's the only game of the year where uh, the players on either side are willing to die for their opponent. And, uh, you know, and that goes to the respect that we have uh, to, to the Army and, and the respect that the Army has for the United States Navy. Uh, but it's definitely in fun when we have these big competitions and, and I'm putting Navy stuff in his office and he's you know, yelling uh, army stuff back at me and we're back and forth. And, and here in the ballpark, we have numerous retired army and Navy guys. So they all, they all razz me when I'm running around, but that's, that's the fun of it is, is it's more like a brother. It's like having a brother that, that, that's cheering for a different team. Like, you know, you're having fun with it. Nothing's personal. And then the game's played. And then afterwards we shake hands and move on. And, and, and that's kind of what it's been like with Wes. And, and uh, you know, when the Navy gets the upper hand, you know, for that's a tough week for him. Cause I remind him every day and, and a couple of years ago, it happened to me when the Army pretty much walked on the Navy pretty bad. And, and he reminded me of that daily. So that's the fun of it. And uh, I really like working uh, for Wes. You know, we have that military mentality. Sometimes we forget that our lingo and our jargon is not understood by others. So we have to bring ourselves back to uh, the civilian world. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been an honor uh, working with Wes. Um, he's a great leader. And he's uh, really made strides. Uh, with the Corpus Christi hooks and, 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 and made us a better ball club and made the facility a better facility. And, um, yeah, with the exception of him being an army guy, I think he's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's great having, uh, having both of y'all uh, on the team and, and us, you know, we, like you said, um, having, having military veterans that uh, work on our game day staff and, and having that perspective from y'all is great. The, the one thing we have to, we have to break out our acronym uh, dictionary every now and then, because you guys, like you said, you'll throw around the jargon and, and we've got to figure out, okay, what do they, what do they want from us right now? What do you guys need? <laughs> and if we can translate it, then we're, we're normally in a, in a good spot, but um, Jerry, we'll wrap up here. Uh, I just want to say thanks for joining us. And, uh, and really, again, you know, truly thank you for your service. And uh, thanks for being an integral member of the, of the Hooks team. We wouldn't be where we are today without you and, and your leadership. So I appreciate it. I, I want to take a, take a chance to do that here publicly. But uh, any, any final thoughts from you? Anything closing out this, uh, the interview today? Uh, I just want to uh, thank all the fans. Um, you know, 
we're only here for you guys and we exist because you guys brought us here and uh, working with the hooks has been a privilege. And, uh, you know, if you see me out at the ballpark, if you see any of us, if you see me, JD, Brad, any of us at the ballpark, uh, feel free to stop and, 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 and talk to us. And if there's things we can do better, please let us know uh, so we can make this place the best it can be. And uh, thank you for allowing us to be part of the memories that you create in Corpus Christi. And thank you for allowing us to be part of your family and your community. Absolutely. That's Senior Director of Operations, Jeremy Sturgeon for the Corpus Christi Hooks. Jeremy, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you at the ballpark soon. Thanks, buddy. There you have it. Jeremy and JD put a bow on this week's show. A big shout out to Robert Ford of the Houston Astros, to former hook Drew Sutton, along with Tina Butler from Del Mar College for their time this week. So for Jeremy and JD and Dan Reiner and Amy Johnson, this is Mike Coffin saying so long and thanks for listening and please subscribe to the Hooks Baseball Podcast. <laughs>